this episode, a local designer kickstarts his own board game legacy from creation to fulfillment. Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode of Board Game Times, the podcast about the people, places, and events making tabletop gaming great in Chicago. I'm your host, Clark Bender, and in just a moment, I'll have this episode's interview with Jason Brooks. Jason has designed his own board game called Legacies, and he'll tell us all about what it's like to kickstart and self-publish your own game. But first, last episode I mentioned I was excited because I was heading off to the Dice Tower Retreat in Orlando. By the time you hear this, I will have been back for a couple of weeks, but right now it's just been a couple of days, and I gotta say, I am still riding high. The retreat itself takes place at a hotel in Orlando. You're in a hotel ballroom or a partial hotel ballroom. The big attraction, of course, is the Dice Tower Library that they bring up for the retreat. It's like 2,000 plus games. They say they have most of the Board Game Geek Top 1000 games, and it, it sure looks like it because this library went the entire length of the convention room wall. It was impressive. It was like 20 to 25 of those rolling metal butcher's racks just filled with games, and you could just go grab one and bring it to a table and start playing it with people. So just an incredible selection. And that's really the whole point of the retreat. It's really just a chance to be in a room with a gigantic library of games and play games. There aren't any vendors there selling in particular. They don't have any major events. They have a a game exchange, but that's really about it. There's no big speeches or talks or anything like that. So you're really just there to play a bunch of games. And it's just incredible. You know, it's like five days straight. I think I played 20 plus games in all that time, which in some ways doesn't feel like a lot. But when you're learning a lot of games and meeting people and all that, you're being social. It takes a little time to set up and play a game. I won't go through all of them, but I'll highlight a few that I thought were really fun. One in particular that just stood out as a kind of thinky game, I'm not sure I'm any good at it, but it was called That Time You Killed Me, and I think it's just about to be released from Pandasaurus Games, I think. And it's kind of a chess-like game. You have three different boards, and the idea is you're playing in three different time eras. One is the past, one is the present, one is the future, and you can move between the three, and when you move between the three, certain things happen, and what you're also trying to do is box out your opponent at the same time. So you basically have pawns on all of these boards. If you go back in time, you will duplicate yourself in the future. If you go forward in time, you can't occupy the same space, that kind of thing. So you're trying to knock the other person's pawns into the walls of the board, as it were, to, quote, kill them. And the first person who's left in only one era is the one who loses the game. Just a lot of really interesting ideas and strategies that come out of it. And it's kind of got a system where you can open up new boxes to learn new rules and make the strategy of the game deeper and harder. So one box, a little bit of a spoiler alert. The first box you open after the very basic setup of the game involves being able to plant seeds. And when you plant a seed in the past, it becomes a tree in the future, right? And then it becomes an obstacle, which changes your strategy. So just really cool idea. If you're a fan of that kind of thinky strategy game and a two-player head-to-head game, might want to give that a look. They also had Foundations of Rome, which is kind of a big, chunky, plastic area control game, I guess, for the lack of any other name. You have these Roman buildings that are totally done up in plastic, really big. I mean, some of them are like four inches long, like an inch and a half high, really chunky. And you put them out on the board. What you do first, actually, is there's just a like an eight by eight grid of lots that you can bid for and buy. And then once you've got some co-joined lots, you can put a building on it problem is, is other people are doing that at the same time, and you're all bidding on these lots so you can get it in each other's way. And then you score the buildings, and then there's some clever ways to put buildings next to other people's buildings so that you score off of them. So really clever. We played two-player, and it was a little not so great because I think it devolves into a certain kind of game, but it really looked like people who were playing at four- and five-player were having a lot of fun. So I think it's one I'll try and give another chance comes in a huge box. I'm really not sure how much it's going to cost at retail, quite honestly, because there's so much plastic in there. You might find it interesting. Foundations of Rome, I thought was really fun. Then I also played the new expansion of Dune Imperium. I can't remember what the whole name is, but it involves Ix, I-X. It really kind of changes parts of that game, which is very interesting. It adds a new tech tree that you can get involved in. Still cards, still doing a lot of the same activities you do in that game with card play and worker placement and battles. Just add some new strategies, which I think will give that game a lot of flavor. 
On top of that, I won't go into a lot of details. I played some interesting games like Beyond the Sun, which I'd really been meaning to play for a long time. The Loop, which is a co-op game, along with the Night of the Living Dead version of Zombicide, which is pretty fun just as a co-op game. Played a couple of good, heavy kind of Euro games. Uh, Great Western Trail, the new edition. Gollum, which is by the folks who did Grand Austria Hotel, I believe. Maracaibo, I'd gotten to play finally with another person because I'd been playing it solo during the pandemic. So lots and lots of games. If you want to know more, hit me up, send me an email. I'll tell you all about it. But just a great opportunity. If you ever have a chance to go to that Dice Tower retreat, I really recommend it. Or just go to something like it. The Gaming Hoopla that we have here in Chicago is a very similar event too. Just a big room full of games and people playing games. I just love something that's kind of down to the core like that as opposed to a big convention like Gen Con. Those are fun too, but very different kind of experience, right? This is really all about just sitting down and playing games and meeting people. Anyway, let's move on to this week's interview with Jason Brooks. I hope you enjoy it. I'm here today with Jason Brooks. Jason is a budding game designer and we're going to get into it. I was telling Jason before we started things that if you think my usual podcast is unprofessional, then I'm even less professional today because I don't think I could be much less prepared for an interview. I was having some computer problems which got me flustered. And because Jason's a pretty new in the scene, there's not a ton to research. So Jason, forgive me. I'm going to ask some of the most basic questions today, but thank you for being on the podcast. Hey, that's all right, Clark. I'm excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be fun. I kind of like to start with the basics. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from. How did you come to be in the Chicago area? Let's just start there. Sure. So I have lived in the Midwest my whole life, spent uh, half of my childhood in Columbus, the other half in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. And then after college, took a job up in the Chicago area and have been here now for the last, gosh, 25 years. There you go. You're a native now. I am a native now. Yes, exactly. And married kids? I am. I have uh, four kids from uh, my first marriage. I'm uh, remarried and uh, my kids are all uh, growing up. Uh, they range from 12 to 20 in age. Wow. Your own internal yeah. focus group. Yes. Yes. Uh, great play testers. So growing up in Ohio and St. Louis, were your family game players? Did you play games in the family? We didn't play a lot of games in the family with one exception. My grandmother, when I was around 10, uh, was excited to teach me the game of Scrabble. And we played very regularly every time we got together. Um, She had an old set probably from the 1960s where one of the blanks was missing the eye that she had hand drawn in. But uh, my love of Scrabble and time with my grandmother actually uh, inspired me to play Scrabble competitively. So for well over a decade, my 20s and early 30s, I played Scrabble competitively. It got up to around a 16, 1700 rating, somewhere in that range, um, and actually ran a tournament in Chicago for 10 years. So I uh, was very much into that game and, uh, and that, uh, that scene. I know around. nothing about Scrabble professionally, as it were. 1800, I mean, I'm assuming that's obviously high, but like, what's, what's the scale there? It's similar to the chess scale. So uh, the best players are normally around 2,000, 2,100 in the Scrabble world. So when I, when I crossed 1,600, that was, my, that was when I felt like I, I had uh, accomplished what I had wanted to in that space and you know, retired from then uh, a while ago. Still just play online with a bunch of my uh, friends from the Scrabble world. Yeah. Went on on a high. That's great. Can one go professional in the Scrabble world? Is there actually the ability to make enough money to make a living in Scrabble? Uh, I'm aware of one person definitely who uh, reports on his taxes that he is a professional Scrabble player. And I, uh, I never played against him, but he came regularly to the tournament area in Chicago. So Yeah, you probably don't want to play against him. I certainly wouldn't want to play against him. <laughs> you might have a chance to at least score some points off of him. That's amazing. <laughs> You're actually the second person who's mentioned their grandmother as one of their gaming inspirations, which is really cool. So nobody else really played in the family, and you obviously got into Scrabble. When were you exposed to board gaming and hobby board gaming? That came much later. As my kids started to get to an age where they could start to play games, um, you know, no one would play Scrabble with me in the family, so I had to find some other games. That I could I see could why. Play. I could see why. That's understandable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I had to find some other games uh, that I could play with the, the kids. And I, I didn't necessarily gravitate towards the old tropes like Trouble and, and others. Uh, because I had played Scrabble for so long, I had always 
enjoyed the strategic aspect. And so that had me gravitating towards some of those uh, strategy games. So with the kids in the early games that we played, it started to dip us into the hobby space, including Catan. And then once uh, my oldest reached around 10 to 12, that's when things really exploded and uh, the game started to take over our household um, with a new game coming in every month or two. That's super cool. So you were sort of discovering these games at the same times as your kids were. Yes, yes, absolutely. Seven Wonders was one of our other early ones. We had over 100 plays as a family and uh, had been tracking them all in uh, in an app to see who was winning and how and all, all those metrics. I, I love numbers. So uh, you got uh, all those gamer traits. <laughs> I do very much so. So how were you discovering games at that time? How were you getting that information? At the time, it really was just uh, stores like Target or sometimes when I'd go to the mall, uh, there was a game store in the uh, mall that we lived close to. So I would occasionally put my head in there. And that's when I really started to come across some of the first hobby games since I didn't have a regular gaming group. Uh, and was discovering the hobby with my kids. That was how I first stumbled onto some. And then uh, there was one one event that really pivoted me from not just a, a player, but over into a designer. And that was, I can't remember if it was 2015 or 2016, but I had participated in a Mensa event, the one that they hold once a year, where they actually bring in 50 to 60 games from publishers and they have 300 people come learn all the games throughout the course, or you have to learn half, learn and play half the games throughout the course of the weekend. So you have to find a group, uh, learn the game, play the game, and then rate the games. So, and then the highest rated games coming out of there get the Mensa Select Seal of Approval. So I participated then when it was in Chicago a few years ago and uh, being able to see just a wide variety of hobby games really exploded both my interests and had me thinking, you know, this could be my next hobby, trying to come up with one of these. Do you have any memorable games from that convention? Like you remember like, oh, I really remember playing this. Yeah, a few. Sheriff of Nottingham was one that I'd played there for the first time. I had played New York 1901. Uh, there was an abstract game, and I really wish I could remember the name of it. It was so simple and and clever. Uh, it just had, everyone had a circle, a triangle, and a square. And based on the number of sides that your piece had, determined how far you would move it around a, a circular track. Oh, actually, I think the name came to me. I think it's called Circular Reasoning. Uh, so those were some of the ones that stood out. There were other games that didn't stand out in a good way. They're like, okay, I, I see all the things that are wrong with this game that I don't don't enjoy about it necessarily, but definitely a wide variety of games. I want to go back briefly to playing games with the family. What turned out to be the favorites after playing many games for many years with all the kids? Uh, you mentioned, so, I think, Seven Wonders, right? Yep. Seven Wonders is one that we can always get to the table. Another one was uh, Codenames. The one struggle when choosing games is my daughter is the youngest, and uh, she's seven, eight years younger than than my oldest. As a result, though, was able, always able to play a lot uh, heavier games than usual because everyone else was, and she she didn't want to be left out. Um, so Scythe is another one that uh, we played and play regularly. You know, when she was really young, she'd play uh, Rusiet since that's the one that doesn't have to plan ahead. You can be the same. You can do the same action uh, each time. Uh, yeah, I would say that those are some of the the regular ones. And then there's another game called Dimensions, which is a ball stacking game. Like you have to stack them in a pyramid based on uh, certain rules that come out. And that's another fun, uh, fun one that anyone in the family uh, enjoys playing. I have a picture in my brain of your seven-year-old daughter kicking my butt at Scythe, which <laughs> would be totally likely. I don't know how old she is now, but I, I could still imagine she's a better player then than I am now. So I'm going to brag on her once. One thing that we did was uh, we did a full campaign of Charterstone, and that's probably the last time that we all played the same game together as a family. In Charterstone, she was woefully behind the rest of us, and it's a uh, legacy style of game. So you're playing the same people uh, over a course of 12 games. And we were somewhere in the 10th or 11th game, and um, my daughter had been uh, taking certain cards, and her uh, brothers were accusing her of hate drafting. And like, you don't even know how to use that card. Like, why would you take that? Take anything else. Don't take that. And all of us had planned and were like, all right, this is how we're going to use our last two turns. And then because she took that card, she was able to basically derail everyone else's plans and fulfill her own plans. Like no one saw that coming. I want to say she was nine or 10 at that time when that happened. And it just, it blew us all away. I was, it was, I was so proud of her. <laughs> that is fantastic. Honey, you can kick my butt anytime you want. Yes, if you're going to yes, do it I like that. happily lose to you yeah. that way. Yeah. Dad is very pleased right now. Yes. 
So have all of them, for the most part, stayed gamers, or is it just kind of a phase? They all now have their favorites. So what tends to happen now is uh, they've all gravitated into these are the games that we like. So now when we're playing games, it'll be uh, maybe two of us or three of us, depending on what genre we want to get to the table. So my daughter and wife like the lighter games, and all of the boys like their own versions of heavier games. Like One likes cooperative, um, a couple of others like strategy, but different strategy games. So are they now in the stage where they're introducing you to new games? They're not there yet. They're not there yet. That might be hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> Dad knows a lot of games. A couple of them are off at college. One of them's a part of a board game group there. So I do expect him to start uh, coming back maybe with something that I have not played. There you go. That's great. I love hearing about how families discover games and play games. So that's a, that's a really cool experience. You talked about going to this Mensa event and being sort of inspired to think about designing games. Talk me through where that went next. The path I took from there was the circular reasoning game that I had referenced earlier. That had really got an idea in my mind. And around the time, I had also just picked up a 3D printer because my degree way back in the day was in engineering, but I did um, do consulting as a day job. So I I don't necessarily touch that engineering arm very much. So um, 3D printer was going to be something I dabbled in. And I thought, oh, this can help me maybe with game design as well. So I spent several months uh, learning the 3D printer and working on my very first design, which was called Clockworks and involved a series of gears uh, that all interlaced. And uh, it had a very poor theme. And once I finally got it to the table, I quickly realized that this brilliant idea in my head was far from great. However, I had loved the process. So after six to nine months of trying to get all these gears built out exactly the way I wanted them and, and, and working together and, and coming up with the rules for this relatively simple game, um, by then my uh, interest had, had uh, been peaked to a maximum. So did uh, you ever take that anywhere or did, did it literally just like live and die in, on Jason's workshop? It is still, it's still together. Like I have not pulled it apart. I don't think I have any designs yet that I've given up on to the point that I've cannibalized it. Um, so right now all of my designs are still, uh, there's a prototype that's playable somewhere and Clockworks is still still there. Um, the funny thing was, I think it was about 18 months later, I was at a, a new game group that I had joined and I told someone about Clockworks and they said, oh, that sounds a lot like Zolkin. I had never heard of Zolkin, never seen Zolkin. And then I saw the, the five gears on there. I'm like, Yep, that is that looks exactly like uh, what I was putting together. Very different style of game, but uh, what comes next? Uh, so had uh, several other um, early designs. I have a purely a card game that's more of a party game that we actually still play um, when we go to my in-laws. Um, all the cousins uh, will uh, ask if I brought it, and we'll bring it out. But it's called Deadly Sin City. It actually plays a, a relatively large uh, player account, but I'd start off trying to get puns into all of my design names. So the idea was that you were in Vegas and I think in Vegas at a religious convention, but trying not to do anything bad. But all the cards are all the deadly sins. So, uh, and you're trying to stick other people with, uh, have them get caught with them. So, so it's a fun little game that I, um, I have not developed uh, much since I started off on that. And then uh, I did some other lighter games, which were in the same vein. And then there was one that I was extremely passionate about that is still on the shelf, but I'm planning to bring that one back soon. It is a a very big strategy game, um, and it's called Worship, Worship. And it was spun off of Deadly Sin City, but the premise of that game is that uh, you're building up societies on island nations of different uh, religions, but then once all the people have been converted, war breaks out because everyone wants their religion to be the one to, to survive. So the worship is an O in the beginning and then A in the second half uh, when everything pivots to uh, building up ships and war resources. So that one will come back into my fray. That's one I think about often. Um, But uh, when I did my early play tests of it, it was going to be on pace to be an eight-hour game. And that was by far more than I was intending. So Okay. Your Twilight Imperium. It was my Twilight Imperium, but my intent is to streamline that and pull that down into a 90 to 180 minute window. But I, that was several years ago, and I, I've learned a lot since then. So I know a lot of things I plan to do differently when that prototype comes back out. So where are you playtesting? Where are you getting your games out in front of other folks? What's your process like with that? So um, I know uh, the first time I actually got my designs out was at a local meetup of designers. So um, Randy Eckel, who I know you've had on the podcast before, had organized an event out in the Schaumburg area. And uh, once I had Clockworks uh, working, I first took it out there and got to the table and got my playtests in. 
the group there was so welcoming, um, a lot of great minds, a lot of very different types of designs. Uh, so it is one of my very regular uh, sources of gameplay testing. And then I also started to go to some of the protospiels. I've been to one up at Madison a couple of times. I was at a Chicago one a couple of times, uh, and then been up to Milwaukee a couple of times as well. And taken a bunch of my designs up to uh, to each of those, um, which is just a great you know three four day weekend of uh, play testing. And then when I definitely got serious about it, I actually started to buy a space at Gen Con. There is a something out at Gen Con for anyone who has gone called the First Exposure Play Test Hall. It's a free event. You can get tickets. You show up at a time for a two-hour window, and they will have anywhere from 25 to 50 games that people are playtesting just in that one window. So you can take a look at all the game names in their brief description and then pick one that you want to try out and, and go do that. I was even there one or two months ago now, uh, taking a couple of new designs that are going to be my upcoming ones that's been a great place to play test because then you break out of, I love all the people in Chicago and I get some great feedback here, but sometimes you need a better variety of play testers and ideas. Some fresh perspectives, right? Exactly. Exactly. So out of that, you've got a game called Legacies, which was kickstarted. So tell me about the genesis of that game and how you came to choose that path for publishing. So a uh, couple of things along that line. When I did start in game design, I was very intentional. I um, wanted to self-publish. So my kids were at that age where I, I wanted them to see that, hey, if you've ever got an idea, if you want to be creative, there's a lot that you can do yourself. I want you to see that if there's something that you're passionate about and something that you believe in, you can take it from start to finish. And so that was one of my life goals for, for my kids was for them to be able to see something like that come to fruition. They loved games. I loved games. And uh, I thought that would be a great way to do it. So in my mind, from the start, self-publishing was was my plan, which required a ton of consumption of podcasts, YouTube videos, online blogs, et cetera, of mistakes others had made and, and lessons that they've learned to, to learn from. So I did a ton of research, met a ton of people through other channels. So I knew I wanted to go down that path. How legacies came to be I had several designs that I'd started and, and somewhat shelved and tried to figure out, all right, what's going to be the one that I start with? And all the advice had been, make sure it's a small one uh, because the small ones are easiest, especially if it's just cards or just a handful of components, et cetera. So as I was getting new, new prototypes to the table and getting them tested, I was always thinking in the back of my mind, all right, is this the one that I want to take forward? Is this the one that I want to start my brand with, if you will? And for a while, I had been trying to um, work on a uh, time travel game. I always visualized it, but never got that onto paper because I couldn't quite get all the mechanisms in my mind working. I, I at least want to make sure I've got some sort of vision of how it could work before I'll actually start to prototype and take the time to make all the components. And then I saw the movie, The Greatest Showman, which is about P.T. Barnum's life. And as a child... I actually remember that uh, one of my favorite things to do with my family was to go to the circus. Um, I actually have a scar on my face from apparently when I was two or three and my parents told me we were going to the circus. I ran around thrilled and cracked my face against the side of a coffee table <laughs> and did not actually get to go to the circus, went to the doctor instead. Oh, I was hoping you got scratched by a tiger at the circus or something. <laughs> I, was, I think you need ooh, to change your story. Ooh, maybe, embellish yeah, it a bit yeah. more. I, I like that. I might mix that up. But so when I saw that movie, I was like, oh, you know, P.T. Barnum got a mixed history, but you know, he had a long history. His name is one that people still know today from what he built and the fact that the concept and the idea still, still exists. So I took that time travel idea and shifted it a bit into what if you have a bunch of characters from the early 18th century who have that ambition and say, you know what, I'm going to be so famous that I'm not just going to be the most famous while I'm here. I'm going to be the most famous person 300 years in the future. And that is the premise for legacies. So the other thing for that movie that jumped out to me was in the movie, Hugh Jackman picks Zac Efron to be his successor and carry forward the circus into the next decade, right? It's the next generation. So the concept of successors came into play for me as well as part of the game. And, and that's where I, that time travel, itch worked for me and all of everything connected. So within the matter of two weeks, I actually had a working prototype of the game. It looks very different now than it did then, but the core actually never changed. So there are 10 different characters and each character has two industries that they influence. Um, and there's a wheel in the uh, game in the central circle that shows all the characters around it and all the industries and their linkages. So every character is linked to two industries and each industry is linked to two characters. 
And that drives a lot of the mechanisms in the game because there's a market and uh, you might want to see your industries go up because it can benefit your income. But if it goes up too much, it might actually help other people become more famous than you. So that's the, uh, that's the premise behind legacies. And when I got that first prototype to the table, I saw it click with playtesters in a way that none of my other playtests had. And I realized, all right, this is the one I need to be focusing on. So fast forward, it's a, it's a big game. It's a 30 minute per player game. And I think it has 700 components, like 300 plus cards. And yeah. <laughs> so the idea of starting small did not follow that philosophy, but it was definitely the right thing to do. So um, from all the, the prototypes I had taken to the table, this was the one that just play testers are reaching out to me the next day. They're like, I was thinking about the play. Like I never do this or I only do this with my favorite games. Like how I want to do it differently next time. And, and so that resonated because that's what I want from a game. That's fantastic. Why do you think it took off so well with early playtesters? There were a lot of interesting choices in it where some of my earlier designs were, since they were lighter and I was newer in designing, I think there were fewer interesting choices for players to make. Uh, whereas in this game, there's a lot. There are a lot of choices out there and all the choices seemed interesting and would take you down different paths. And there was a, this goes back to my engineering days, right? There's an interconnectivity of systems and they are all interrelated. So that's a thing that just comes naturally for me from that type of learning and from my day job. So I think some of that really started to come through in that design. But then the theme as well, not all the successors that you can get are good. And so people are like, why would I even want this successor? Thematically, this is your sister saying, hey, Frank over here needs a job. Can you, you should take over your thing. Well, Frank's awful. And if that's the only choice you leave yourself with the successor, then you have to deal with that for the next 50 years in the game. To have someone who all of a sudden is not great for your for your I love that. And then try and turn it around if, that, if you're inclined to, or go darker, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so you tested it, obviously, and got really good response. How did you take the leap to that next step? You were dedicated to self-publishing. I can imagine the bar for saying this is it could be very challenging in that situation. It was. Uh, and I, I got very lucky when I started to look for someone, because I, I'm not artistic. So when I started to look for someone to help with graphic design and to start thinking about art, I put some calls out on a few different Facebook pages that I've been regularly visiting and, and contributing to. And I got a handful of responses, but one of the people who responded goes by the name of uh, Yoma, uh, Y-O-M-A. And he had actually done some graphic design and art for a number of games and helped to write a few Kickstarter pages in the past. So I was able to find someone who had experience in this space and he was excited about legacies because he had wanted a game where he was our director, where he was the primary one driving everything and, and contributing to that. So between his experience and desire to have a game that he could be the primary artist on and my desire to have someone with experience, it turned out to be a perfect partnership there. He knew a lot from his previous Kickstarter campaigns and then learned what worked, what didn't work and was helped, able to put together a well-structured page and uh, help me collaborate on stretch goals. And then in my consulting background, I have a lot of, I'm used to making sure I'm taking care of the client and making sure that they're happy. So the customer service aspect is all part of my day job. So that was a natural fit for me um, in terms of running a Kickstarter and making sure that every backer knows that they're cared about and that their opinions matter. Now, there's a lot of moving parts in a Kickstarter, and uh, this is where we get into, I think, a really fascinating part of the process, right? Which is now we get into that meat and potatoes part of putting up the Kickstarter and fulfilling it. And like you said, customer service, and now you're in the fulfillment stage. So were there moments where you're like, wow, I had no idea I'd have to be thinking about this? Did it also result in changes to the game itself along the way, or was that always a pretty locked process? So leading up to the Kickstarter, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on what to expect. I knew there would be some curveballs, but I got some prototypes of the game made. I sent those out to reach out to a few people to do preview videos. One of the things that I think uh, really helped me was I consume a lot of online content in the, the hobby gaming space, right? So I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of who a lot of the players are. And one of the people I was going to reach out to was Rado from Rado Runs Through. And a couple of weeks before I was about to reach out to him, I realized he had put Legacies and Wargame Geek on one of his lists of games that he was intrigued by. Made me realize like, okay, definitely the right path to reach out to him. So I did, and he turned out to be one of the preview videos and had a very positive response to it, more so than I would have even expected. So that was one of the things that I think definitely helped validate for me, like, okay, yes, I'm on the right path. This is all going in the right direction, at least. 
use some other preview videos as well. I think those were, were important, right? And those came from connections I'd made in the previous couple of years at Gen Con and other events as I'd been meeting others in this space and, and just learning more about the hobby. And then Yoma's experience uh, building a Kickstarter page really shined, right? Because he had been working on the art. He was able to showcase the pieces they had ready there, have them stand out on the page. I feel like all the stuff leading up to it kind of fell into place. I did a little bit of advertising through Board Game Geek and the preview videos, but those were my main ways, plus all the playtesting. The, the game had been out in the wild for about two years through playtests. You know, anyone who playtested, I gave them the opportunity if they want to share their email address. So I had all of that going into the campaign. During the campaign, I think it went as expected, meaning I don't think there were a lot of surprises for me, except for the, the funding, right? You never know if you're going to fund or not. My goal was $25,000. I ended up at $138,000. That's fantastic. Um, Congratulations. And I reached my goal. I can't remember if it was day one or day two, but it was um, within that first 48 hours. So as soon as I hit the goal, I, I was like, all right, <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> what a sigh of relief that I'm must making have been. a game. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm just curious, how did you set that original goal? What was 25000 What was special about that number? That was one thing I went back and forth on a lot. And again, did a ton of research. I talked with others who had been successful at Kickstarters. There are a couple of gentlemen from uh, Road to Infamy Games who had been through, I think, three Kickstarters by this point that helped me figure that out. But ultimately, the question I think that they planned in my mind, which, which helped me stand on that goal, was I had a good idea of what it was going to cost to make it. And I knew that I was willing to put some into it as well, right? Um, not just my time, but it saved up because I you know, wanted to be able to make a game. They had encouraged me, and I think it was good advice, was find that intersection, right, of what you need and what you're willing to put in and make sure that that goal is a realistic one. So if that combined goal gets you to where you need to be, then you should feel comfortable with that. But you'll see some campaigns that have very high goals and they may be absolutely necessary, but the challenge is the mindset of a Kickstarter backer is, ooh, if this isn't funded yet, then I'm not quite sure I want to back it. So I was confident that if I had limped over 25,000, that I could build a great game and, and deliver it. So that was the important part in helping me set that target amount. So you put the page up, you fund on day two. Now what happens after that? <laughs> so after finishing out the campaign, this is where my naivete definitely kicked in. So Yoma and I had a, a rough schedule of how long it would take to do the rest of what he needed to do. So my original delivery plan was to deliver in December of 2020, roughly a year after the campaign. But there was still a lot of art and a lot of graphic design that had to go into that. Plus, we had a bunch of stretch goals, which uh, we, we hit all of our stretch goals. But every single one of those added a new piece into the delivery plan. And some of those required playtesting because we actually um, we put in a bunch of new event cards, new successor cards had come as part of the campaign. So I had an idea of what those could be, but had never actually written them down or tested them. So knowing that there was still a lot of art, you know, had to now work with game trays to be able to include those in the deluxe version of the game, had to play test all these new components that had not planned for. All of that uh, was uh, on the docket. And that is also then roughly around when COVID hit a couple months later, the start of 2020. So all plans went out the window there. Yoma's fantastic, but he had a newborn and uh, another young child. So his whole schedule went out the window. We actually did end up adding another artist to be able to help round things out uh, who did a great job. But yeah, all the timelines were out the window there from, from art and graphic design. And then the playtesting, I had to figure out a way to, to make that happen. I did not want to be the only playtester of all these new cards and elements. So I needed to figure out another way to make that happen. Later in 2020, I was able to find someone to build out a copy of Legacies on Tabletop Simulator. Did a wonderful, wonderful job with it. Um, I was lucky to find someone who had a lot of scripting skills with Tabletop Simulator. So making the setup uh, pretty easy. I don't know if you've ever used Tabletop Simulator, but it can be, can be a little clunky to use. <laughs> but that, that I needed to do. And then I was able to reach out to a bunch of backers, uh, create a Discord channel and set up some days and times and ultimately was able to get in the playtesting that I needed to. I got to know a lot more of them by being able to do that and even chat with them through the Discord channel. So I know that they feel more engaged in the game as well because they were able to influence it directly uh, after the fact. By being open and honest and giving an update every uh, four to five weeks on where things are and always being able to have something to show, I think really helps resonate because the reality is during that time, I actually did not work on any of my other designs. So until I got everything into the factory's hands, which happened in the June timeframe, until they had everything, I wouldn't let myself work on the other designs. I'm like, I, if there's something on my plate that I can do and move this forward, uh, Legacies is going to get that because I've got that commitment to those backers. So. 
in hindsight now for future Kickstarters, I'll make sure I have a lot more of the art and graphic design done going into it, right? So that way there's less variability there. I think that's probably the biggest change uh, that I would make, as well as if I'm going to do any uh, stretch goals of gameplay content, making sure I've at least play tested it or, or have it prioritized. So it doesn't need to be in there or would it be good to have it in there? Talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts then of the manufacturing process. You finally got to the point where your art is done, you spec your pieces out, you've got your gameplay, and it's kind of like, this is it, we're locked, right? You're, you're locked in your design. For people who've never been through that kind of process, what happens next to get all those digital assets turned into reality? <laughs> yeah, so I've been lucky to have a great project manager on the manufacturing side. So I've been working with Gameland, who has done some big projects like Too Many Bones, uh, which I know uh, people love the, the way that that turned out. And some other big games like that are things that have come out of their factory. They've been great and easy to work with, but there is a ton of back and forth. And because it's based in China, usually that back and forth takes a couple of days just even to hear, right? So even though I got all the final files over in June, there were a lot of interim states and we actually did a lot to keep things moving as things were ready. So as an example, the deluxe version of the game has metal coins. That was one of the first things I started working on with the factory was going uh, back and forth on that. So we would send them images. They made some tweaks. So there were probably three or four weeks of back and forth just on the coins alone, making sure those turned out. Those were actually done, I think, September of last year. So they've been done for almost a year now. The wood bits came next. So uh, we had to send them 2D versions of all of those. And it's it's crazy how easily and quickly they can churn out all sorts of different great looking shapes. Each time they got a physical version of something, they would first send me pictures and, and we'd try to do what we could from pictures. And then once they felt like they were close, they would then send me a physical copy of that. The other things that we had to test out a couple of times are in the deluxe version, the game board itself is dual layer, which to my knowledge, we're one of the only games that has a folding dual layer board. So the one component I'm the most nervous about, because I know it's an important one and a big one, but with all the back and forth, I feel really good with where we landed on that. And I'm impressed that they were able to make it all work. It's a fourfold board, but we had some back and forth to make sure all the pieces were fitting the way they expected, or at least as close as manufacturing tolerances would allow between wood and cardboard. And then the piece that we're on right now, all the final pieces with the art, so the cards and the rule book and the box, the main pieces with the art, that's the last piece that I'm actually waiting on. They have had it all ready to send, but the cards have not been cut. They're waiting to cut the cards, and then they'll actually send me the production versions. It's supposed to get them any day. But uh, they've run into issues with power outages, like intentional uh, blackouts. So they haven't even been able to do some of the things that they need to from a manufacturing standpoint. So there are the, some of those challenges that have held things up. Any day now, I should be receiving the production samples. And uh, I don't expect any changes, but this is that last chance to catch anything. If there's something significant that's off, then everything is not boxed and sealed yet. So they've got a chance to tweak or change that if, if we have to. Yeah. But So you're at that really exciting, heart-fluttering phase here where it's thumbs up or thumbs down. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I've seen enough versions of it that it should be a thumbs up. So right now, all the everything is there at the factory, ready to assemble and shrink wrap. They sort of have piles of already improved components, as it were, at this point, yes. right? So it's yes. kind of like, well, these things are all ready to go, but we still don't have a final game to assemble, as it were. Right. It's the approval of the cards and the, and the box and the rulebook. Once I give that thumbs up, what they will do is then box it all up, shrink wrap it. And then I've been working separately with Quartermaster Logistics. Uh, that's a logistics company. One of the very early things I learned was not to try to tackle that myself. So I made sure to find a good partner there. They have been negotiating and trying to find containers to be able to put them on. And luckily, Legacy's had a great response you know, all over the world. So I think only 60 or 65% of my backers are from the US and Canada. The rest are actually global and a lot in Europe, which makes sense. This is a Euro strategy game. So. That means that ultimately there will be three different containers that go out and then uh, there'll be a fourth uh, fulfillment directly from China for uh, those in the Eastern Hemisphere. So later this month, they should get loaded under their container and head out. Depending on the shipping lanes, they're, I think they're four to six weeks right now. And then depending on the port that they're going into, how long it takes to, to actually be able to dock, unload, and then get through customs. Again, I'm using a logistics company, so they're experts at this, and, and hopefully we'll be able to navigate uh, whatever they need to. 
after that four to six week ocean voyage, a couple of weeks to get unloaded at the dock, then uh, it's a matter of coming through quartermaster logistics uh, fulfillment queue, which is probably another one to two weeks. That's hitting though right around the holidays. So we'll have to see how that ends up playing out. Oh man, that's exciting. Barring disaster, it sounds like you're looking at beginning of 2022, even if you run into some snags. So that's real close. Exciting times for you, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. And I'm uh, working right now with John Gitz Games. He does a lot of rules videos. As soon as I get my production copies, uh, I'll be sending one his way. So that way I can have a very current uh, rules video go out. So as people are starting to get copies of their game, for those that like to learn online, because it's a 28 page rule book. So for those that prefer to learn uh, through video, <laughs> they'll have a they'll have just a, a light little filler game that you've designed here. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, how do you decide how many copies you're manufacturing? I mean, you obviously have the ones that you have to make for your backers. Yep. I assume, though, that you also then make a calculated guess on top of that of the ones that you want to sell or sell through other channels. I have no idea how any of that works. A couple of key things that go into that. First of all are the minimums. Manufacturers are going to have thresholds at which the pricing changes. One of the attractive things about Gameland is their minimum threshold is 500. So they are a safe bet for any new publisher. Uh, because most other minimum thresholds are uh, 2,000 copies. That was one of the reasons why I ended up choosing Gameland. Luckily, I was able to, to be able to need a lot more than that. So in terms of choosing then, it was looking at the breakpoints on cost savings and making choices there. So the standard edition, which was the least popular, which makes sense, the deluxe version is very tricked out. So, <laughs> And the Kickstarter discount almost makes it a, why wouldn't I do deluxe? To be able to get the reasonable price point, I actually did a thousand of those. So I will have several hundred of those left over to be able to sell through. I'm working right now with a web developer to set up a web store, which I did not have yet. And then with the deluxe, again, talked to some publisher friends that I made over the years. And you know, their advice was if you're going to put money in beyond, now is the time to do that and go ahead and bet on yourself. So I ended up getting a few hundred extra copies of the deluxe version, which I had not originally planned on. I made that change about uh, six months after the Kickstarter. Then funding myself with the hope and the plan that as soon as people get this to the table, they're like, oh, I want this or I wanted to back it and I didn't. And now I, now I want my hands on it. So I think it's easier to have those than do a second print run immediately. Yeah. Beginning to end your self-publishing, self-retailing, as it were. Yeah. Since I'm a new designer, um, retail is a challenge, um, especially in the US. Most of the retailers will buy from distributors, of which there are four or five uh, big distributors. And everything I'd heard and learned was for a first time game, unless it turns into Gloomhaven, it, it can be very hard to even get a distributor's attention and, and into retail that way. So I'm waiting for my second game before I try to pursue the distributor strategy more. Have you been approached though by publishers or distributors based on the Kickstarter as we might be interested in being a distribution partner for you or? Uh, I have been approached by several overseas companies who want to license it. So licensing is another thing I did not explore for the first one. I felt like I had enough of a learning curve to try to figure everything out. But if I do a second print run of Legacies, which I'm hopeful I will, because one of the things I'm working on is an expansion for it. If I do a second print run, then I want to seriously consider all the licensing offers that were put on the table. So that way there can be some localized content developed. The board itself is language independent, but the cards and the tiles all have text on them. So. Thank you so much for walking me through this whole process because it's a big process and something that's very new to me, but fascinating to hear sort of the inside details that are going on behind the scenes. Now that you've been through the process, mostly, how does that compare with what you had in your head? And what do you think are the, the memos you would write to yourself for next time? I felt well prepared and it was even harder than I had prepared myself for. There were a lot of little details that I found myself paying attention to. So between the artists that I worked with and the graphic designer, there was still a lot that I went ahead and took on myself in terms of you know arranging things on the page or, or a lot of the interim work. So once I'd get a frame from my artist or graphic designer, I'd then be the one to put that on the card. There's a lot of that that I did myself that I feel would be much better suited and happen faster if I could put it in the hands of someone else. So finding a way to better leverage those partners that I'm working with, I think is a key thing that I learned I need to do differently. Um, there are a couple of things I do for the first time that I should not have to do again. 
like getting a VAT ID for the EU and the UK because Brexit also played into this. So it doubled the amount of work needed to be able to sell between both the EU and the UK. I'm still waiting on some of those numbers. And I started working on that a year ago for context because just even the governments are backed up in terms of issuing those. So that's something that was a lot more work than I expected this time around, but at least that'll be behind me uh, as I go into future projects. Because my plan is to, I do not plan for it to be my day job, but I love it so much that you know, my goal is to put a game out every 18, 24 months. Sounds like you're on a pretty good path. I hope so. And so what about, when, pat yourself on the back for a moment. What's something you think you just really did right? I think the engaging with the backers is a huge thing I did right. I had several um, friends and, and other peers who were like, wow, you handled all those comments graciously and gracefully. Like Even when some of the more critical comments were coming through, um, there are always things I could do better in that space. But I do feel like when I look back at the comment thread, I'm really happy with how all that flowed and the way I was able to engage and the frequency and the honesty and the transparency, as well as the positive attitude uh, that I was able to bring to that. That sounds like great advice to anybody in this game space who has the ideas of going in this kind of a direction. Be open, be honest. That's just the way to go. All right. Well, I feel like I've poked and prodded you enough and, <laughs> and taken enough of your time and drawn as much brain power as I can possibly out of you. So since you have no brain strength left, that means it must be time for the Board Game Times mini game. Jason, is your brain ready for this? Ready as it'll ever be. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. First question for you. What is your gaming beverage of choice? Uh, I would uh, generally say uh, a nice red wine. Good man. You're mulling. You've got the attention span to have a little something in your system and play a game. Good for you. Get you through a good game of Scrabble. <laughs> That's right. Okay, then. Next question. What is your preferred number of players around the gaming table? Uh, three or four is usually... Uh, that sweet spot for me. Just enough that uh, you don't have to wait too long between your turns, but at the same time, you're getting multiple player styles at the table. Good answer. Next question. What do you think is your most admirable gaming trait or behavior? I would have to say my willingness to, to learn the rules in advance and do my best to make sure that we're all understanding and following, especially as you know, a father who's done a lot of gaming with the family. No one else reads a rule book in the house. It's all up to me. So being able to play table captain and make sure like, oh, did you pay for that? Or can't quite do that because you need two of these rather than that. So some people may not appreciate uh, catching or noticing those things, but people can rely on me for knowing those. You're that guy who's willing to take the hit and read the rule book and understand the game. I like yes. that. Good for you. Well, the flip side then, what do you think is your least admirable gaming trait or behavior? So I think the least admirable comes out even more so on the family side than when I play with my friends. But because I find myself playing that captain or fielding the squabbles between uh, siblings sometimes, what that means is I haven't always been able to think of my turn before it gets to me. So that means I sometimes have to find myself starting there. So I can be a little bit on the slower side when I'm playing with the family, but it's not as pronounced when I'm with other adults. Okay, next question then. What is a type or genre of game that you just love to play? strategy games i'd love to put the mind to the test so that's my first choice every time is more strategy in the game the more interested i am all right bring on the heavy stuff for jason next question then what is a type or genre of game that you just don't enjoy dexterity is not my wheelhouse if you if you say hey i got a great dexterity game that you would love to play you're gonna have to lure me over there although i am willing to play anything I've got a crookinole board sitting over my shoulder right here. So you're open, but just extra effort to get you to play. Exactly. Well, this is going to be good because you've just done a Kickstarter. You've been thinking about this kind of stuff a lot. What is a physical game component that you love? Mm, from a tactile perspective, I love metal coins. There's just something about having that heft uh, in your hand and, and the clink uh, of them on the table. Um, but from a gameplay standpoint, I would say multi-use cards, um, cards I can use in more than one manner. And I've got to make a choice as to how to use them. Fantastic. Good answer. And it sounds like for those of you who are going to check out Jason's Kickstarter page when this is done, you're going to see lots of physical game components you can love. So yes, check that definitely. out. Okay. Next question then. What is a game that you own, but haven't played? Ooh, uh, I have not yet played. Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig. I just punched everything a couple of nights ago, but have yet to actually uh, give that a play. Have fun. Similar kind of question, but what is a game that you really want to play, 
but you never have had the chance. Mm. You know, my answer would have been different to this two weeks ago because at the top of that list was Great Western Trail, which I actually got a chance to play at Gaming Hoopla. Oh, uh, excellent. For the very first time. So I had to look up what my new, the new game that I'm going to be looking out for. So the game I have not yet played that I really want to now is Gaia Project. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. That's on my list too. That one always looks very intriguing and crunchy. So I can see why it would appeal to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How was that game of Great Western Trail? I also have that on my list of really want to play this. Yeah. I loved the experience. I loved the game. Just loved all the choices, the way everything was laid out. And actually now that play of Great Western Trail is informing my player mat design for the game I'm working on uh, next. There are a couple of things I've been trying to solve there that I got some inspiration from. One thing just leads to another, right? It does. does. That's why it's great to play a wide variety of games. Absolutely. Final question. What is a game that you currently want to recommend and why? Oh, there's so many. (laughs) I'm going to recommend Through the Ages is one of my favorites. I love games that tell a story. If a game can draw from history, I, I enjoy that as well. And while it's a big game, it's a heavy game, maybe an intimidating game to some. I just, I, I think that's probably one of the more elegant games that I've ever uh, played and, and truly, truly enjoy. And, and no matter how long it takes to play, whether I get done in two hours or five, depending on who I'm playing with, I always feel extremely satisfied at the end of the game. What could be a better way to recommend a game then? There you go. Through the ages, game recommendation from Jason. And extra points, you didn't recommend your own game. <laughs> Well done. I knew. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Your inner sense of humility prevented you from doing that. Congratulations. Exactly. Well, now, because you held back, this is the shameless promotion part of the podcast. So I want to give you a moment to tell people you know, where they can find you. If they're interested in finding out more about legacies, which is obviously in a stage where it's still just being delivered to backers. But if they want to find out more about that, where can they go find that information? I give you the floor. So all of my contact online is pretty straightforward in that uh, Brookspun Games, which is B-R-O-O-K-S-P-U-N, Brookspun Games. I have a website being redesigned. Uh, The new redesign will actually have a store uh, that will allow you to buy it or order it, pre-order it starting next month. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I have a YouTube presence, Instagram, any of those. Whatever your choice is, you can find um, and connect with me. There you go, folks. He's out there. He is very much out there. And it sounds like even though Legacies has still got a little bit of time to cook before it's finally out there, there'll be an opportunity for you, if you haven't backed, to go find it on Jason's site and maybe pick up a copy, buy a copy for a friend. Who knows? Sounds like it's going to be a great experience. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a real education. I feel like I'm walking away with a lot of knowledge. So thank you so much for sharing that knowledge with everybody and talking about this experience. I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of Legacies because it looks like a great game. I'm sorry I missed the Kickstarter, but can't wait to uh, see that game and maybe get a chance to play it with you or somebody else because it looks like a lot of fun. I'd be happy to. I know I enjoy every time I play it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good sign. Fantastic. Thanks again for being with us today. Best of luck to everything for you. All right. Thank you so much, Clark. Really appreciate it. Okay. And that is it for this episode. Thanks again to Jason Brooks for taking the time to talk to me while he is in the thick of getting his game out to his backers. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited to get my hand on Legacies and give it a try. How about you? Did you back it? Do you think it sounds interesting? Let me know. I love to hear feedback. I want to know what you think about the show. So, you know, shoot me a line and let me know what I should be talking about on the next show. You can always reach me at Clark at BoardGameTimes.com. That's Times with an S or on the Board Game Times page on Facebook. You know, it's lonely here in the sound booth. So reach out, talk to me, let me know what you're thinking. As always, I want to say thanks to my listeners. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with your gaming friends. Make sure you rate and review the show wherever you find it on the podcasting service. That's how I get exposure and more people find out about the show. So until next time, thanks for listening. Play lots of games. Be good to one another. And may all of your board game times be the best of times. Take care. Thank you.